Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special returning guest, Lenny Rachitsky. Lenny, you're completing the hat trick on Venture Stories. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Eric. I, I kind of realized the trend is positive where on my first episode, it was uh, me and two other guests. In the last episode, it was me and one other guest. And now <laughs> it's just me. Yes, you, you've you know, worked your way up the hierarchy of, of Venture Stories. Um, <laughs> Next is just you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, Lenny, uh, I wanted to have you back on because you have this fantastic newsletter and some of your episodes are only for, for paying subscribers. And I wanted to go behind some of the episodes that are behind a, a paywall and just get into some of those topics so that people can learn, learn a bit more. And if they're intrigued, you know, get, get even the deeper scope on, on the newsletter. Uh, so it's going to be a various assortment of, of, of topics. Um, the, and, and maybe just by way of introduction for people who are unfamiliar, how do you define the, the goal of, of the newsletter? The way I describe it is, uh, it's an advice column. For product managers, people driving growth, uh, people working with people, anything that stresses you out at the office. So it's very broad. And I feel like I should niche it down uh, if I was really smart, but I just can't because I'm just interested in all these things and I just want to write about stuff I'm interested in. Love it. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's going great. So, so if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it. Let's get into our first topic. The, the most important bottom up SaaS metric to, uh, SaaS metrics to try. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so this came from, uh, so I work with a lot of startups and I invest and advise and a lot of them are bottom-up SaaS companies and they're always asking me like, what the, what the heck should I be focused on as a startup? What should I be growing and tracking and even how should I track it? What tool should I use? And maybe just to define a bottom-up SaaS company, the companies that come to mind are companies like Slack and Figma and Airtable and Coda and Asana. And, uh, they're essentially B2B subscription products that start off being used by an employee at a company, which I don't know if it's nice to say, but they're at the bottom. And it starts at the bottom and then grows through the organization kind of uh, virally. And what's cool about them is they kind of grow like consumer products. They grow virally and cheaply, but you can charge enterprise prices. And so it's a really good business model. And that's why they're so hot amongst investors and and founders. And so so the question then is, what should you be tracking as you uh, build a bottom-up SaaS company? And the way that you think about it is what's kind of the flywheel of a bottom-up SaaS company and product. And it's essentially new users coming in, especially across different organizations, then how it virally spreads through the organization to their colleagues, and then how many of them stick around and continue using them. So what I did when I thought through the metrics to be focused on is I kind of broke it up into pre-revenue post-revenue, and then there's just like a bunch of other stuff to track that is useful and occasionally important to look at to kind of diagnose and find opportunities, but not the main focus. So so diving into each of these. Um, so pre-revenue, the, the three areas that I think are most important to focus on are uh, retention, virality within the organization, and top of funnel growth. And so within each of those, there's a few metrics to choose from. Within retention, there's kind of there's kind of three ways to look at retention. Uh, you can look at user retention, percentage of users that start using it and then are still active three to six months later. Logo retention, which is essentially 
percentage of companies that join and start using it and the percentage that are still active three to six months later. And then there's a term that I think Andrew Chen popularized called L7 or L30 retention, which is kind of looks at power users and uh, in like, say, a week period, how often are, how many people are using it once a day to seven times a day? And it gives you a sense of how addicted people are to your product. So those are retention metrics to look at. Then the next bucket is virality within the organization. And so things to look at there is what percentage of your users are inviting other users? Uh, what percentage of the those users are converting into users? And then uh, there's kind of this like virality factor, which is what percentage of all of your new users are coming from invites? Because if it's say like 80%, that tells you you're growing through virality. If it's like 10%, that's not really a viral growth mechanic. So that's that bucket. And then the third bucket is basically top of funnel growth. So it's like month over month, user growth, activation percentage, and just like traffic to the site. So that's all pre-revenue. And then there's like a lot of things here. I hope people are taking notes. But uh, within post-revenue, so now you're making money. So you should be focusing on those other things. But then there's also the revenue piece. So then within when you're post-revenue and you're making money, the three buckets that I think are important to focus on, revenue growth, retention, but a couple more retention metrics, and then monetization. So then revenue growth, basically it's like month over month, MRR growth, ARR growth. Within retention, you want to start looking at net dollar retention, which is essentially the, the amount of revenue that a cohort of users are driving later, say 12 months later, and you want that to be uh, growing, not shrinking. And then within monetization, you want to look at what percentage of people are converting to paid from free and what's your payback period and what are your margins. So that's the kind of the post-revenue bucket. And then there's all these other metrics that maybe I'll name a couple that are valuable to look at, but this is where you get in trouble and start looking at too many things, but they're still useful. So it's like, there's like engagement metrics, like key actions per day. Like, you know, if you're Jira, number of tasks being created per day, uh, then there's more ways of looking at virality, like uh, number of invites sent and velocity of people converting. And then there's a bunch of funnel conversion metrics that are always useful to watch, but you don't want to be sucked into those too much. Like, you know, people landing on the site, converting to a sign up, and then percentage of visitors even clicking a call to action. So that's kind of the, the suite of things to think about. And then I'll add one other thing. The other question is just like what tools to use. And I asked this on Twitter and I asked people what tools they use to track these metrics. And what's surprising is Google Sheets is by far the most popular tool for startups to use to track all these things. They just stick it all into Google Sheets. And then some companies uh, use something called Google, Google Data Studio on top of that. And then a lot of companies also use ProfitWell, which I wasn't actually familiar with, but now I'm using actually for my newsletter and it's very cool and free. So that was one of the more common tools. This is very helpful. Oh, what separates sort of like the great bottoms up go to market strategies from sort of the, the, the mediocre ones? I think a lot of it is always just comes down to the product. Like, do people really want this product? Are they going to tell their friends about it? Do they invite their friends about, do they invite their colleagues to it? I think that's going to be at the core of it. Uh, you know, a lot of companies want to go bottom up and, and it just doesn't work that way. So I think a lot of these questions are going to come down to, are you building something people really want and, and are they going to tell their colleagues about it? Speaking of products, let's segue into a, a question that we're actually experiencing at, at OnDeck because we're 30 people right now. And the question we're asking is, or, or, or thinking about, when do we hire our first product manager? So this is a, a big topic you, you tackled. Uh, why don't you unpack your thinking there? Yeah, this comes up a lot with companies and I never had a good answer. And so I, this newsletter is a really good excuse for me to learn stuff and talk to people and figure out what works. And so I did that here. So maybe taking a step back, uh, what is the job of a product manager? 
I like to think of it as your job is basically to marshal the resources of your team to ship product and deliver business impact. And to do that, there's kind of these three buckets. That's the way I like to think about it that are kind of pivy. You, you shape your product as a product manager. Your job is to shape the product, ship the product, and then synchronize the people to do all those things. So those are the jobs. Then the question is, okay, before you have your product, your first product manager, who's doing those jobs and do you need someone full time? The natural progression that I find at companies is essentially the founders start doing those jobs, even if they don't realize they do. And then as you grow, either the founder continues doing those jobs or some combination of employees starts doing them like a designer a lot of times or really a senior eng leader. But eventually they either don't want to be doing those jobs anymore. They get tired of those jobs or they're just like not good at it or they have other things to do. So that's when you start to think about your first uh, product manager. And then the question is, when is the right time? If you do it too early, I find the PM gets very frustrated. And I hear these stories a lot where they're just like doing the bidding of the, of the founder and they're just project managing and executing and they don't have a lot of autonomy. And then if you do it too late, you end up finding that a lot of uh, employees are really frustrated because things just aren't working well. So I found there's kind of three signals that it's a good time to start hiring your first product manager. And the, what you want to look for is these kind of problems recurring. The first is that you have frequent bottlenecks within your organization where the team is usually engineering or design is just like blocked on you making decisions or blocked on somebody and they just can't move because someone has to approve a design or give feedback or be in a meeting or something like that. So if you find that your, your team is just bottlenecked and you don't have time to, to, to unblock them, that's a signal that you need someone there to be making those decisions. Uh, another is frequent misalignment across the team where people are not on the same page about deadlines and priorities and what you're building and the problem statement isn't clear. So if you're finding that your team is just running into that a lot, that means there's nobody doing that job well. And then the other, which was kind of interesting, I didn't see this coming, is after you have product market fit, sometimes companies just have a very clear need where they need kind of a business-minded person to focus on a problem at the company. Uh, so for example, at uh, Twitter and Snapchat, their first product manager was a, was a PM focused on monetization and ads. And it's because they just realized they need someone to focus on that. And the founders are busy doing other things. So that's kind of the, that other bucket is you kind of know what you're doing and now you need someone good to focus on a problem and kind of take it from the founders. Yeah. And I, and I kind of did this research of like, when did companies find their first product manager? So I have all these stats, like, I don't know, I'll just throw some out. Like uh, Uber hired their first PM at 20 employees. Lyft at their 13th employee, Instacart waited to their 75th employee, uh, Snapchat and Stripe are kind of notorious for waiting a long time. They waited until they had over 200 people to hire their first PM. Do you explain the difference there that just by the CEOs being much more involved in the product or the founders being more involved, or is it just the type of product required it later? Yeah, I think it's probably the founders are very product minded. And so they don't need a PM to take over some of those things. I think some companies like Stripe, I think, had like a philosophical dislike of product managers and they, they didn't want, they wanted to wait as long as possible. And I think they're kind of celebrated for it by some people. Yeah. And then sub companies like Instacart. So these are like employee numbers. They're not engineering numbers. And I think that's probably a better way of looking at it. Like how many engineers do you need before you hire your first PM? So a company like Instacart, they had a lot of ops people, I imagine. And so that kind of inflates that number. Yeah. And the bills off of this, like, is, is, is the idea that, like, people should build, should manage, like, just be build it, like, the builders should own it. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people had bad experiences with PMs where they just are there and people don't think they're necessary and they're or useful. And what I find is that just means you have a bad, bad product manager. Uh, if, if your PM is not accelerating your team and making everyone's life easier, then they're just not a good PM and you should find a better PM. Zooming out to, to great product again, you also did this deep dive on how to improve a product's retention. Can you uh, share what you learned? Yeah. So retention is, is a, I don't know, warm place in my heart because it's so damn important for startups to get right. It's essentially the best way to figure out if you have product market fit. And so everyone's always trying to figure out how the hell do I increase my retention? And so I spent a lot of time trying to think through that and talk to uh, folks that have figured it out. And so the first thing I took away is it's really hard to improve retention. When you look at where companies launch, it's rarely they significantly increase retention. And so that's just something to keep in mind when you're looking at your retention numbers. Don't assume it's going to be like, you know, like as an investor, you're always looking at retention cohorts and things like that. And you want to believe they're going to increase them substantially. But the reality is it's it's rare that companies really increase them significantly. And even at the companies I've worked with, it's really hard to move it significantly, especially later stage. And the reason it's hard, basically, retention is a measure of are you delivering value to your customer? It's really hard to invent new value. That's why most startups fail and and don't work out. Mark Andreessen has this great quote that I love that everyone's time is already allocated and they're not looking for your product. Uh, and so you have to convince them to use this thing and trade off against other things they could be doing. So it's hard. That's kind of the bottom line of increasing retention. Um, and even when you do find value that you can deliver value, it's hard to make it significantly more valuable. So again, kind of coming back to that same problem. But uh, but coming back to the first point, retention is maybe the most important thing to get right with a startup. So it's really important to try. And it does happen. And and so it's worth trying, um, especially if you're early stage when you're still figuring out the product and you haven't kind of formed what the business is, is yet. So, so what I found is there are seven ways to attack increasing retention. And these are, I'll go through them in the order of most uh, likely to work. So the first is, is the simple one of just make your product better, improve your product. And there's a bunch of ways of doing that. You can solve your customer's problem significantly better. So Superhuman's a good example of that, where they started with one product and then they slowly iterated and added more and more functionality and slowly built higher and higher retention. They just made the product much, much better as they learned. And it took them four years to work through that. The next is solve more problems. You know, you find like one little wedge. So what else can you do for a customer? Another way to improve the product is make it cheaper. People like lower prices. And so they're more likely to use it and stick around. Another way to improve the product is make it faster or more reliable. You know, Google and Amazon have these stats of they made their product faster and more people stick around and convert more. There's other, there's also kind of these like edge cases. So with marketplaces and social networks, you often have to wait for network effects to kick in. And so the product gets better over time. And a lot of times retention kind of comes back up. It's kind of a smiling curve. So that's that's one way of doing that. And then uh, another way of improving your product is essentially pivot to a different problem, which is something you always want to think about is, okay, no one's going to want this thing. Like, what do we know that we can pivot to that uh, we've learned from this experience? Instagram is kind of a classic example. They pivoted because they realized nobody wants to check in. So that's like the one bucket, make the product better. The next bucket, and this actually ends up being the most likely to work for most products based on what I've seen, is improving your onboarding. And why this works is if you find some value that you kind of see people find value in, you often are losing people because they just don't get what you're offering or they they kind of bounce out of the funnel 
they don't really these they're not successful when they try. So there's a lot of opportunity to improve onboarding. So ways to do that is manually onboard them, kind of like Superhuman does. Airtable did this too. You can uh, make sure their new ex their experience is great when they start. You can increase the odds that they have a great time. A good example here is uh, Airbnb. We tried to get new hosts their first booking as fast as possible, so they had a good time and experienced the value. Um, and then you could also just get more people through the flow so that they convert and experience the value. So that's that bucket. And I'll go through the others quickly. Uh, the third one's actually really interesting. It's changing your users. And what's interesting here is people don't think about this often. You know, you, you launch your product, you get it to users, and then they, they don't stick around. And it turns out the reason your retention is low is they're not the right audience for this product. And you're better off finding a different audience that actually values what you're doing. So that's something to think about is are there other markets that you should go after that may actually value what you're doing? And then the last uh, four, uh, make it hard to give it up, kind of make it sticky. So it's like, you know, build habits, create incentives, uh, getting people on annual plans ends up being a really big retention driver where people can't actually leave and they end up just kind of using it because they're already paying for it. The next bucket is catching users before they leave. Uh, so like, I think Hulu and Netflix were famous for this, where it's like, hey, instead of canceling just news and they'll come back later, that's that kind of bucket. Uh, the next way of doing this is reminding users of the value offering, which is like, you know, a lot of people use products and then they forget how good they are. So finding ways to remind your users, hey, this has been useful for you. An example of that is, um, I think like a dentist office product where they email their uh, clinicians an email every week with a digest of all the appointments they have and all the data they've gathered. And then the last bucket is is bringing users back after they've gone. That's a way to increase retention. Rarely successful, but it's a way of, you know, just like, hey, we have this new feature. Maybe you should come check it out. So those are the seven. And again, that was an order. And hopefully people are taking notes because there's a lot there. Yeah, no, there's a, you're giving a master class here. One of the best ways to acquire um, users or customers is a, is SEO, and and a lot of people don't know how to think about SEO. You you, you did a bit of a deep dive to uh, you know give us a couple a couple frameworks. What one you unpack that? Yeah, this was actually a guest post. I'm going to be paraphrasing on behalf of uh, my buddy Brian, and I actually learned a lot from this post myself. And the takeaway is essentially the way you win SEO in general is you basically create a ton of valuable web pages that people. And importantly, more importantly, Googlebot and other search engines like. And you do that in a scalable and cheap way instead of somebody sitting there and creating a bunch of pages. So, so that's the strategy. A ton of great pages that people and Google like that you can do cheaply. And there's three ways of doing that. One is user-generated content. For example, TripAdvisor, where people talk about traveling and ask questions and answer questions, and they just generate a ton of great content. Quora is another good example. Pinterest is another good example. It's just a bunch of user-generated content and it creates tons of pages. The third bucket is, is somebody writes actually just a bunch of content over and over again. There's a company called Levels that I'm an investor in that just generates, I don't know how they do it, but they have like these amazing blog posts all the time about health and metabolic fitness. And, and it gets, it drives a lot of SEO for them, but it's time consuming and expensive, but, but it works. Another company is NerdWallet that did this really well. And then uh, from what I've read, Canva uh, did this too. They create all these templates manually of different designs and things like that. And then the third bucket, which I think is the most interesting, is find ways to auto-generate thousands of pages that are valuable to people. And the way you do this, well, okay, so first examples of this, uh, Thumbtack is a good example, and Yelp is a good example, where if you Google best sushi restaurants in 
Oklahoma City, Yelp has a page for that. And if you Google best plumbers in Oklahoma, Thumbtack has a page for that. And the way they do that is they have all this data on all of these professional services slash restaurants, like their hours and locations and reviews and photos. And what they do is they just create all of these combinations of of directory kind of pages that are useful because people are looking for these things and have all of this content that they already have sitting in a database. So the way to do this for yourself is in, it doesn't work for everybody, but it's, it's a good thought exercise for whatever business you're in is, is first just look kind of write down all the content that you have that is ideally proprietary and pieces of data that you have for your company. So a couple examples, you know, Thumbtack again has all these professional services information, hours and locations and reviews and photos and things like that. Uh, Strava, the running app has all these running routes that people are creating. Airbnb has all these different listings. Yelp has all these restaurants. So just like write down all the data points that you have, then see if you can come up with uh, pages that are useful to people from all that data. So for Strava, it could be the best running routes in San Francisco. For Airbnb, it's like tree houses and, and wherever. So, so you first come up with the data, then come up with these pages. And then you think about what words are people searching for? You figure out what, uh, basically what pages are going to be popular using uh, Google Keyword Planner. And there's other tools like, I think it's called Hrefs that tell you what uh, people are looking for and how much volume there is. And you kind of, the Venn diagram of all these things is what you want to build. So if there's people searching for flowers in, in the mission district, that's a good sign that you should try to win those keywords. A best practice is that you shouldn't be going after really popular terms like flowers because that's really hard to win. And instead you go after these longer tail words like flowers in San Francisco or like roses in San Francisco. That's kind of a strategy. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that, that's uh, that, that, that's awesome. Zooming out here, we've, we've talked about a number of things related to product, but you also had a great deep dive on just how to think about uh, product strategy more broadly and, and how to get better at it. Uh, can you can you unpack your, your your thoughts there? Yeah, I love how I'm just bouncing. My brain is stretched. I love <laughs> it. So, okay, so product strategy. So first of all, what is strategy? Uh, it's, the way I think about it is it's essentially your plan to win. And then you ask, well, what are you going to win? What are you trying to win? And usually at a company, you're trying to achieve the mission of the company or achieve the mission of the team. So for example, at Tesla, their mission is get people to Mars. Sorry, not at Tesla, it's SpaceX. Like Twitter, you know, it's get more people to tweet. That might be what they're trying to achieve. So then the strategy is how do you achieve that? That's basically what a strategy is. And the reason I find being good at strategy is important is... At a company, as you move up the ranks, strategy, being good at strategy becomes more and more important. It almost helps you get move up the ranks. And also, good strategy is how companies win. And bad strategy is usually just like a huge waste of time. And you waste a bunch of time, resources, and, and, and brain power. So all the more reason to get good at this stuff. Um, and so maybe before we get into the strategy, best practices, what I always think about is where does strategy fit in? When you are thinking through basically your roadmap and goals and mission and vision, like how do all these things sequence? And what I find helps, uh, the, the best sequence of events is, is basically you first want to figure out what is your mission as a company or a team. Then you want to figure out, okay, our mission is here's what we want to achieve. The vision is what does the world look like when we achieve that? And that's important to have because it gets everyone on your team. Uh, excited about where you're going and also just like 
make sure that you're heading in a place you want to go. Is that the world you want to create? If this is your mission, is the vision something you want to live? So mission, vision. So then once you have those things, that's when the strategy becomes useful because now you know what you're trying to achieve and what it's going to look like. And the strategy is how you get there. So then when you have the strategy, which we'll dive into, uh, then you can do, you can figure out the goals because the goals are just a way to measure if you're making progress towards the strategy and the mission. And then from the goals, you can figure out the roadmap because the roadmap should be basically how do we drive these goals, which achieve the strategy, which achieve these, this mission. So that's the rough sequence. It's not always in that order. Sometimes you have goals that inform the strategy, but that's usually how I think about it. So then how do you get better at strategy? Your original question. So there's kind of three parts to it. One is figuring out the actual strategy. Then part two is articulating the strategy, because even if you have the most amazing strategy and you can't articulate it well, no, it doesn't matter. It's not going to work. And then there's actually acting on the strategy. So with then within the first bucket of determining the strategy, uh, and I'm going to give an example of a strategy I helped develop at Airbnb, but kind of as a framework, what I think is important when you're developing a, a strategy is essentially five qualities. It needs to be problem oriented. It needs to kind of be rooted in a problem you're trying to solve. It needs to be insight driven. So dri based on things you've learned and actual data, both qualitative and quantitative, not just, you know, opinions. It needs to be actionable and have concrete actions and suggestions and not just vague, you know, happy talk. It needs to be focused. And the whole idea of a strategy partly is to give you focus and tell you what you should be doing and not be doing. So focus is really important. And then it needs to be cohesive and feel like it's one kind of, you know, beautiful unit of, of thought and not just like this thing and a disconnected other thing and a disconnected other thing. So as an example, at Airbnb, one of the projects that uh, I worked on that I'm most proud of and most and one of the more successful projects was was working on Instant Book. And where this came from was we found essentially that like something like half of guests on Airbnb were not successfully booking. They're trying to book a home. They put in their credit card information, reached out to a host, and they were either ignored by the host or rejected by the host. For generally for very practical reasons, like the days weren't available or they can't like have dogs or they can't support infants or they don't want to party. But as you know, it was like a billion dollar company at this point and half of guests were not having a good time. And so it was a big problem. We realized that we need to tackle. And so we kind of developed, okay, our mission is going to be make it easy and fun to book a home on Airbnb. This was, this was essentially our team mission. And our vision became, and we tried to think ambitiously, if you can see it, you can book it. And so that kind of became our motto. That's where we want to go as a company. That's the world we want to create. So initially, and this didn't work out, our initial strategy was, what if we just optimize the funnel of, of someone trying to book? And it turned out the biggest drop-off was guests trying to book and then a host either rejecting or ignoring. That was the biggest issue in that funnel. Not, not like putting in credit card information, not searching and discovering and not, not even checking in or anything like that. It was like hosts rejecting. So, so we spent about six months just optimizing that funnel, sending more reminders to hosts, putting pressure on them to accept faster and more often, making the response rate public and things like that. And we made some progress, but we found that wasn't doing much. It was kind of incrementally increasing that uh, funnel, but it wasn't amazing. So six months later, we decided, let's take a step back and think about, let's go back to this vision. Okay, if you can see, you can book it. What does that world look like? In that world, uh, guests can just book. They're, they can book instantly. There's no host review process, ideally, in this perfect world. 
So we started working backwards from that instead of forwards from where we were. And luckily we had this product called InstantBook that already existed that about 5% of guests were using. And so we decided, let's just bet on this. Let's get to a world where 100% of Airbnb is instant. And that became kind of our North Star and, and essentially informed the strategy. So this was an example where this very ambitious goal actually informed the strategy. So the way we did this, and hopefully this makes sense, it gets a little in the weeds, but I think it's, it's kind of interesting. The way we approach this problem of, of getting to 100% of in, instant book is, okay, how do we get to 100%? That means 100% of, of hosts are using it and 100% of guests are using it. And it turned out not every host and guest was even eligible to use it. And so we kind of figured out there's these four levers that we can push on. Hosts adopting InstantBook and hosts being eligible for InstantBook and then guests adopting InstantBook and guests being eligible for InstantBook. So those became the four roadmaps, essentially. And we essentially just created roadmaps within each of those levers and uh, kind of started low-hanging fruit, like making more hosts eligible, more guests eligible. And eventually, as we learned where the biggest opportunities are, our strategy became essentially three buckets to get to world of 100%. Um, giving hosts all the tools they need to be successful, incentivizing hosts to use InstantBook, and then encouraging guests to use InstantBook. And that essentially became the strategy. And there's a bunch of like frameworks and, and metaphors we ended up using there. But uh, two and a half years later, we actually made a ton of progress. We got from about 5% of bookings being instant to over 80%. And that's where they are now, I think, roughly. Awesome. You know, earlier we were talking about uh, retention. I want to segue into uh, conversion. You, you, you wrote a post on strategy and tactics for, for increasing uh, conversion. Can you, uh, can you get into that? Absolutely. Okay. So what is conversion? Conversion is essentially getting more people through your flow, whether it's like your sign-up flow or buying something or listing your home in Airbnb. Uh, the way, you know, like a metaphor is fixing leaks in your leaky bucket of, of your flows. And what's interesting about conversion is at, at some stage of your company, it ends up being one of the more lucrative areas to drive growth because the, the changes there are last forever. So if you increase conversion by like 10% forever and ever, at least until you redesign your entire flow, like most companies often do, you're getting 10% more people uh, going through your flow. And also it makes all of your other growth levers more efficient because if 10% more people convert, that means your paid ads are running 10% more efficiently in a sense. So it's a really interesting lever. It's often not the highest impact lever early on because usually top of funnels where you're going to focus, but, but it's a really uh, big opportunity oftentimes. So when you want to decrease conversion, there's kind of two ways to think about it. There's keeping more users in the flow, and then there's getting more people to come back that have dropped off out of the flow. And that first bucket is usually the more lucrative one. So let's focus there. And so within that bucket of how do you keep people in your flow at a high rate, I find that there's kind of these three levers that you can pull. One is keeping users more focused while they're going through the flow and avoiding distractions. And I'll give a few examples. Two is keeping people more motivated to finish the flow. Like, why why am I going to put up with all of this stuff to get through this thing? So why am I even doing this? And then the third is reducing friction in the flow, which is just impediments and give people a reason to bounce. So a couple examples from Airbnb that I'm, I'm familiar with, at least in each of these buckets. So within the user focus bucket, it turned out one of the bigger conversion wins was when you're searching on Airbnb and you're in the search results, when you click a listing, if we open up 
the listing in a new tab versus in your existing tab. That was a big conversion win because our theory is people go into that one listing, don't like it, and then they kind of lose track of where they are and then they give up versus you save their state of their search result and then they have their other listing in a tab and then they can they have additional listings they can look at. So that was a good example. Another is we have this neighborhoods product that helped you figure out what neighborhood you want to stay in in the city. And it was really cool. And there's all this amazing content and photos of neighborhoods when you're traveling. But we found that people were just like getting distracted by all this interesting content and kind of like bounced out of the flow because they had too many, you know, interesting things to read. So when we got rid of that, actually, it increased conversion pretty meaningfully. So that was the user focus. So so what I would, in all these buckets, what I'd suggest is just ideate with your team of ways to do this. So how do I increase user focus in this funnel? How do I maintain user motivation? How do I reduce friction? Uh, and an example in the motivation bucket is um, it's kind of the, we call it urgency and commitment at Airbnb. And booking.com is really good at this, where they put all this pressure on you to uh, to book now. So it's things like, oh, someone's looking at this listing already, or someone just booked a listing like this, or the price just dropped, or or another example is uh, kind of a different example is hosts, how much money hosts can make hosting. So reminding them of like, here's why you're thinking about hosting. You can make thousands of dollars a month. So giving reminding people of the motivation. And then this third bucket is reducing friction. Uh, Instant Book is actually a good example of that we just talked about because it's friction of booking. Increasing performance is a good is a good example of that where you just make it faster. So that's those are kind of the buckets and maybe maybe we skip the uh, the other bucket of bringing users back, which rarely works well. It, it is interesting. Uh, you know, I, I've been writing a series of posts about seeing your career as a product. I read and, those. Read those all. I appreciate it. And some people, you know, ask about, you know, how to build a network. But I, I think what people often don't ask uh, or think about is like conversion as it relates to network. Like there's people whose sole job is sort of top of funnel for like, if you will convert, people will find you, uh, you know, more often than not. And more people, yeah, should, should think about it in the context of conversion than the context of sort of acquisition. Love that. I love how you took that to a whole different <laughs> realm. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, we in the examples you've been bringing up, you've been bringing up Airbnb, um, and, and a few others, a few other marketplaces. Um, I know you think a lot about marketplaces and, and you invest in marketplaces among other businesses. What are some frameworks you think about to evaluate, uh, marketplaces? Yeah. So as an investor, I always, people often come to me with marketplace startups because I work at Airbnb and I wrote a bunch of stuff about marketplaces and I, I never really had a good framework of thinking about how do you evaluate this, the potential of a marketplace business. And so. So the first thing I realized when I looked into this is like 90% of the reason marketplace businesses fail is not because of the marketplace element. It's all the other reasons that all the other startups and types of companies fail. So my first piece of advice and kind of recognition is don't be so focused on the marketplace elements of a marketplace company. Start with all the other regular things, which I won't get into, but you know, it's things like the market size and, you know, the quality of the team and traction and why now and unique insights and things like that. So not to get into that, but then there's specific things to the marketplace business model that that I found to be interesting when I look at them. Uh, so the first is I find that it's really important to split the product market fit question into the demand side product market fit and then the supply side product market fit. Because the only, like the main thing that makes a marketplace interesting is and different is there's two sides. There's not just you selling a thing or offering a thing. It's somebody offering a thing to somebody else. So that's why they're so complicated. 
And so that's why it's important to think about both sides. So on the demand side of product market fit, and the way I think about it is the customers really want this thing. And you always want to think about, is this going to be cheaper or easier than the non-marketplace alternative? Because that's always going to be easier as a business to build a non-marketplace version of this thing. And so if your marketplace is not offering something to the customer that's cheaper or easier, uh, then it's not going to really work, most likely. Uh, and then similar to that, like how badly do people even need this thing? And then as a part of it, you also want to think about, can you maintain good economics as a marketplace? That's, you know, where companies like Uber sometimes get into trouble because you can deliver something cheaper and easier, but maybe you just can't do it at scale. So that's something to think about there. Um, and then Bill Gurley has a really, uh, I don't know, something he comes back to often that every marketplace eventually has to aggregate all of the demand. Because if you can aggregate demand, if you become the place everybody goes to, to buy this thing or book this thing, then supply will come to you. So I always think about, can this marketplace and aggregate all demand in the future, whether it's now or later? So that's the demand side. On the supply side, the way to think about this is, do suppliers really, really want this thing? Is this really good for them? And things to think about here is, are they making significant income? from being supply on this marketplace, like, you know, are Airbnb hosts making enough money? Are Uber drivers making enough money? Are DoorDash delivery people making enough money? Um, and is the demand high quality? Uh, a lot of lead gen companies offer a bunch of demand to the supply, but it's not good and ends up not being useful and they don't, it just kind of waste their time. And then on the supply side, you also want to think about how exclusive is the supply. If other people are selling it also, that becomes less interesting. So there's the demands product market fit. There's the supply product market fit. The next bucket is, can you scale this with quality? So initially you have a marketplace, for example, Airbnb hosts. Can you get millions of these hosts to provide an awesome experience? Can you get tens of millions, hundreds of millions? Uh, an example, there's a lot of examples of this where this doesn't work out. Um, like exec, I think is one that comes to mind, which is like on demand, uh, they just do anything for you on demand and a personal assistant. And I think they failed because they just couldn't deliver quality experience at scale. So that's something to think about is, can you keep this up even if it's working at small scale? The next thing I look at is, is high, how high frequency and how uh, high the average order value is because the higher frequency and the more uh, expensive each order is, the more you're going to make as a business and the more everyone's going to make. So basically the more of each, the better. What's interesting though, Andreessen Horowitz did this cool analysis of the top 100 marketplaces and about half of them are actually relatively low frequency and relatively low average order value, but they just get it right enough. So so it's interesting is you don't have to be high at either of those things to be successful, but the better, the more you have of each, the better. The next bucket is essentially reasons to stay on platform. A lot of marketplaces, tutor, tutor marketplaces are a good example of this, where you're better off taking it offline. There's no reason to kind of stay on once you find somebody uh, on the marketplace. So an example from Airbnb is the host guarantee was a really good reason to stay on the platform because you get a million dollar insurance policy if something goes wrong. So that's something to think about. The next bucket is, I think Bill Gurley uh, framed it this way, which is you want it to be non-monogamous which again, the tutor marketplace is a good example, or do you, you need to come back off? You want people to come back often and use it again and again and not come once, find a thing they wanted and never come back. You want them to be non-monogamous. So with an Uber, 
you're always booking new Ubers. You're not like, here's my one Uber and I'm done. Versus a tutor or a doctor, you find a tutor or a doctor and you're good. You don't have to come back. So those marketplaces are tougher. And then the last bucket is around fragmentation. You want both sites to be fragmented as much as possible because if they're not, they'll find each other without you. So an example, uh, Uber, you're not going to like find a car to drive you. There's a lot of drivers and there's a lot of people looking for drivers, but it's hard to find each other versus um, a lot of B2B marketplaces where there's like, I don't know, seven vendors in the world and you could just go to them and you don't need a place to go and to aggregate them for you. So that often is a, that's one of the bigger issues in a B2B marketplace I find is slow fragmentation. So those I think are eight, seven or eight things that I look for. Any uh, specifics to note when you think about horizontal versus vertical or uh, consumer versus B2B marketplaces? Uh, on that last point, I, the thing I've found over and over is fragmentation is usually the thing that kills a B2B marketplace idea where there's just not enough. There's too few options on one of the sides and they just don't need you. And then in terms of vertical and horizontal, it, it's interesting because both seem to work. And so I don't discount either one automatically. And I'm still trying to figure out which one is the better bet. And I think it really depends on so many factors. They're both really interesting. One other post you uh, you had that I want to dive into is is your deep dive into into flywheels. We want to invest in, in these types of businesses. How, how do we make sense of, of what are flywheels? A lot of people think they have flywheels, but they may not have them. Why don't you unpack some of your thinking there? Yeah, this, this post came from a sis, my sister who was trying to figure out how to create a flywheel for her uh, team. And so so it gave me an excuse to think about how to create a flywheel and what the heck are flywheels and what are they good for. And, and the, kind of the classic example of a flywheel is Amazon's little circular thing that they drew that they kind of figured out later in, in life. And this is one of the takeaways. And their flywheel is essentially they found more selection on Amazon Drive's a better customer experience, which drives more traffic to the site, which drives more sellers on the site, which drives more selection. And again, customer experience, traffic, seller selection. So Flywheel is essentially kind of this tool that you can use to think through how this works for your business. And, and essentially, if you feed any part of that Flywheel, the whole thing accelerates more and more. So you can kind of invest anywhere and, and it'll help your business. And it tells you what not to focus on also for things that aren't in that Flywheel. Another good example is Uber, just to kind of share a couple more examples, is is more demand on Uber gets more drivers because there's people looking to book them and more drivers creates more geographic coverage, which leads to more uh, faster pickups. And that leads to more demand because they're having a good time, which leads to more drivers and coverage and pickups. So, so these are really interesting to think about for every business. So then the question is, how do you figure this out for yourself? And there's kind of two approaches I found useful. And these are kind of like lists. So if you're taking notes, get ready. <laughs> so the first is start off just making a list of, of these five categories of things. So these are just like start with a list. So the first list is what are the core assets of your business? For Uber, it's cars. For Facebook, it's content. For Amazon, it's like on the hardware side, at least it's like, I don't know, Alexa and uh, delivery people and trucks and things like that and warehouses. So what are the assets? Then what are the core actions that users take? They sign up, they invite their friends, they purchase things. What else do people do on your, on your site or product? Then what are the core needs of your users? For Uber, it's getting a ride. For Netflix, it's something to watch. 
for Amazon, it's discounts and discovering things. Fourth list is what are the natural outputs of your business? For Twitter, it's thing, it's content. For most companies, it's revenue. For companies like you know, Tesla, it's invention. So that's something to think about. And then the fifth bucket is what are the biggest optimizations you could make to your business? So it could be like lowering costs or having more data. So, okay. So those are the lists. You have five big lists of things, ideally. So the next thing you do is just kind of look at these lists and look for things that drive each other. What drives what? And see if you can create a loop of some of these things driving each other. And it's totally cool if it's messy. And a lot of times this isn't like a one sitting thing. It's something you start to plant the seed on and do over time. So an example, if you think about this, if you go back to Uber, their flywheel is more drivers, which is an asset that they have, leads to more coverage, which is an optimization. And more coverage leads to faster pickups, which is a need the users have. And faster pickups leads to more riders, which is an asset that they have. And then that leads to more drivers and that goes around and around. So that's one way of doing it. So it's just like, you know, create some lists, see what emerges. Another way of doing it, and this is based on Jim Collins's book. He wrote a whole book about flywheels. So he knows, he knows what he's talking about. And you should read this book if you're really into this stuff. And his approach is a little different, but it's, it's more useful for established companies that have a lot of history. And his, his suggestion is first look at a list of the most significant successes at your company. Just list them out and then make a list of the biggest failures and disappointments at your company. And then you compare these two lists and ask yourself, what do these successes and disappointments tell us about what matters to our business and what are the important components of our flywheel? And then you pick four to six. He's like, you know, if you're more than six, you're doing it wrong. You should have four to six elements and you try to sketch it out. It's too complicated. Try to simplify it. And then when you have something, you test it out against these failures and successes and see if it works. And what's important when you're doing this is don't overcomplicate it. Everyone always ends up with like 30 things because they're just like, oh, wow, all these things feed each other. It's going to be so accurate. But I would optimize for um, usefulness and not accuracy. It's okay if it doesn't have everything and it kind of evolves over time. And your manager is going to come in and be like, what about this thing? And your team's going to say, what about that thing? And the key is if you should try to have four to six elements here. And, and again, the six time, I think a lot of times companies discover this after the fact and then they seem so smart, but it's useful to think about. And if nothing else, it gives your team a chance to get on the same page about what are the most important elements of your business, what drives growth, what doesn't matter. And so it's kind of this like excuse to work together. And you know, it's like a nice offsite exercise, if nothing else. Yeah. It's funny, in about right after this conversation, I'm about to, uh, Jake Singer is about to interview uh, Dave, uh, Zio Von Deck and myself about Ondex flywheels. So let's, let's take a couple minutes and improvise. How would you sort of use this framework to, to uh, describe sort of what Ondex has going on? Well, let's, let's go through these buckets. Uh, what would you say are the core assets of your business? Similar to like a YC or a Stanford um, or, or, or a Rillage, um, just the the I think the assets are the are, is the network or is the people that are the people that are part of it, the fellows. That's great. So it's like members and and the network that you've created. Okay, cool. And then what are the what are the core actions that these folks take? They um, find and co-founders. Um, they you know pick startup ideas um, and then they you know refer other people you know to to join. Love it. Okay, this is gonna be good. Okay, then what are the what are the needs of your of your users? So of the earliest users, 
finding co-founders, uh, accountability, education, and part of this finding, finding just net network expansion. Love it. Okay. What are the natural outputs of this, of this business? So uh, there's a few different examples. So yeah, startups uh, emerge out, out of it. Uh, they expand their, expand their network. And what's cool, of course, is that they, you know, now that we have horizontal categories, you know, the more fellowships we have, ideally, the more, you know, network effects there are between, between categories that a founder meets an angel investor or, or wants to go on a podcast tour with a podcaster or wants to hire a, a product manager or designer with, with those specific fellowships. So yeah, uh, okay. network, uh, and, and startups come out of it. Cool. So it's like startups, connections, network, friends. Yep. And then, okay, what are the biggest optimizations to your business model that make it stronger? It's a good question. The more, the more people there are, the more categories there are, sort of the more serendipity, um, that can, that can emerge, the more, more valuable it gets. Um, and we're creating this like private LinkedIn of, of people that have, that have been involved. Cool. I love it. So it feels kind of clear to me. There's kind of this like inner loop of more members who have a good time through connections and startups and co-founders refer new members. And that creates this larger network, which drives more members and referrals. Feels like that's going to be the core of this thing. I don't know what the right yeah. words are, but yeah. Totally. And it's interesting. There, someone once recently described it to me as an online events business. And I think they, uh, or they, you wouldn't describe like a, a Stanford or something in, in that way. So I think that the difference for something like this to work, a curation business, it has to really compound because online events are sort of ad hoc and they, they don't, it has, the network has to get stronger and you have to believe that this sort of cohort based model, uh, enables that, um, where there are bonds between cohorts and stuff like that. And that's why these curation businesses like Stanford, like the accelerator model that people like YC and Village have are, um, are really powerful. This is going to work. I think this, this on deck thing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Lenny is one of the early, earliest investors in, in on deck. Uh, so Lenny, this has been of some of the best posts in, 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 in your newsletter or some of the, some of the most recent private ones, at least any, uh, any closing for, for people who want to uh, go deeper. Of course, they should subscribe where, where might you point them or what, what's upcoming? What do you want to leave the audience with? Yeah. Check out Lenny's newsletter.com. Very creatively named. It's an advice column. And so if you need advice on something and want to give me an excuse to figure it out for you, just DM me on Twitter, Lenny San, S-A-N, or uh, email me or yeah, I guess subscribe to the newsletter or DM me. And yeah, I'm here. I'm here to help. That's that's the whole idea. Uh, Lenny, thanks so much for, for giving a masterclass on some of these topics. This has been a great episode uh, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric, for stretching my brain. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.